17-year-old Angela Freeman was last seen on September 10, 1993 here at the old Pizza Hut in Petal. This was the last place that we ever, that anybody ever saw her alive. 17 years old, five months pregnant. Her bloodstained car was just north of Perry County's Monette Bridge. There's a possibility she might be in the river, so we're checking the river right now with the dogs. Rescue workers are searching the river with dogs, and they are also searching the wooded area here. She was uh, coming in from work, and she gave me $80 to pay on her car that we found abandoned out here in Perry County. At this point, we really don't know any more than we did before until we can find her. We're still hoping that it's just not real, you know, that, that she's going to call and say she was, maybe she was abducted and will get away or something, but... Uh, it just really doesn't look good at all. And we're working hard every day. We want this case solved. Where are now with my home? Petal, Mississippi is a sleepy little town in the shadow of Hattiesburg, home to the University of Southern Mississippi, Camp Shelby Army Base, and a dark history of civil rights unrest. But Petal, just to the east and incorporated in 1974, is known as the Friendly City and prides itself on its designation as the safest city in Mississippi, over 10,000 in population, according to its website. And while that may be, a Google search of Petal, Mississippi, 1993, the first half dozen results are about a crime the disappearance 25 years ago of a pregnant teenager, Angela Freeman. You are listening to Telling Lives, a reported podcast series looking at old stories in a true way. This first season, we're going to tell you about the life and disappearance of a vibrant, beautiful, but troubled teenage girl from rural Mississippi who went missing September 10th, 25 years ago. But more than that, our mission for telling lives isn't just to rehash a tragedy. Our goal is twofold, to tell you about the life, not just the disappearance or death of the person at the center of the story, but to let you get to know her as she lived, as she was, and as she planned for her future. And secondly, to let you understand what her disappearance, her removal from her own life story, and the lives of those closest to her did to those left behind. We will introduce you to the people closest to her as we seek to recreate her life story as much as possible. A 25-year mystery has many missing pieces. But we hope in shedding light on this, more people will come forward and reach out with information they may have never shared to finally bring closure and answers to the family and friends of Angela. We all know of people or have heard stories of heartbreak and think, I could never handle that, or thank God it isn't me. But all of the families that tragedy does happen to have also said those things. So we want to know the journey the faith, the crying out to God in the darkness that comes in the quiet hours, 
when the well-wishers and the news media have gone on to their own lives or to the next story, when the tragedy becomes your reality and your reality for years unending, where does your strength come from? So why this case? I took my first journalism class at the University of Southern Mississippi in the summer of 1993 and was hooked. If you've ever had that moment of clarity when you know you found what you may or may not have even known you were searching for, then you know what I'm talking about. Finally, I discovered a major made for my need-to-know nature. I couldn't get enough. I wanted to research and write stories about everything I heard about. I devoured national headlines. The unending stories coming out of Waco, Texas that year, following the siege on the Branch Davidian compound, and the needless deaths of 86 people, many of them children, and the local news events. I had just moved to this small town, and it seemed a relatively common occurrence to open the newspaper and read about another teenage girl missing or dead. In 1993, three South Mississippi families of teenage girls sought answers. 17-year-old Lori Hill of Jones County went missing in January. She was seven months pregnant. Her body was found three weeks later in a creek near Ellisville. No one has ever been convicted with the crime. The charges were filed. They were later dropped due to insufficient evidence. Beverly Rowell, age 18, disappeared August 25th. Children on the school playground found her bullet-riddled body the next day against a school building in Columbia. She had been shot eight times. This crime would take more than 20 years to solve, but in 2014, James K. Polk, more commonly known by the nickname Duke in the community, was found guilty and sentenced to life for killing her on August 25, 1993. The two had been dating at the time of her death. A second suspect in the murder died before the trial. One of the key figures in solving this cold case was Rusty Keyes, who was in charge of the cold case unit covering the Hattiesburg Metropolitan Statistical Area created in 2006. He is also the assistant chief of police at the University of Southern Mississippi. The third girl was Angela Freeman, who went missing September 10th. She never came home. Her body has never been found. 25 years have passed, and her case remains unsolved. So let's back up a couple of days to the afternoon of September 8th. Angela came home and gave her mom, Deborah, $80 for her car payment. She got clothes to go stay with her friend, Paula Kraft, who she was planning to move in with. Angela and Paula had met at Crystal Hamburger's fast food restaurant in Hattiesburg, where they both worked. Angela told her mom that she would come back home before 6 a.m. Saturday, before she had to go back to work. Angela also made a layaway payment that day for baby items and bought some groceries. So she gave me some money and she said, I'm going to go spend the night with Paula. Paula was, she worked at Crystal's with her. And she said, I'm going to spend the night with her and I will see you. This was on Wednesday. She was going to spend Wednesday night and Thursday night and come back Friday because she had to be at work at 6 o'clock. Okay. So I said, okay. So we gathered. We had a little bar there in the house, and we had some stools, and we all sat down. We started talking a little bit, and 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 Nichols was asking her something. I can't remember what it was, and she laughed. And I said, well, um, how's work going? She said, how's work going? And anyway, I said, 
So she said, I'm going to leave. I'm going on to Paula's. You know, we've got some things we've got to get done. And I said, okay. And I, she walked to the door, you know, and, you know, she said, um, love you, Mama. And walked out, you know. You never dreamed that would be no. the last time you ever see your child. No. But, um, because if, if I had known that, I would have said a whole lot more. Yeah. But. Yeah. She walks out, and that's the last time I ever saw her. The next day, Thursday, September 9th, Paula asked Angela to go with her to visit her mom, who lived in Slidell, Louisiana, a bedroom community of New Orleans, about 90 minutes from Hattiesburg. But Angela said no because she wasn't feeling well. Angela was in her second trimester of pregnancy at this point, and the Mississippi heat and humidity are exhausting. Deborah believes her daughter had an OBGYN appointment that day as well. When Paula headed out that evening, Angela was resting. When she returned about 2 a.m. Friday, expecting to find Angela asleep, instead she found a note from Angela asking her not to latch the slide lock on the door because she would be back soon. Early Friday morning, Angela went to the Petal Pizza Hut and was seen between 1 and 1.30 a.m., talking to her former boyfriend, Stephen Lindsay. According to a witness, it was an argument. The last confirmed sighting of Angela was outside that pizza hut. By all accounts of the dozens of people I interviewed for this podcast series, Stephen is the former boyfriend who Angela truly loved. She had dated and lived with at least one other guy in 1993 and may have had casual relationships with others, according to friends, but she was still in love with Stephen although he had begun dating someone else. I talked to former friend and roommate Ruby Kelly, who dated and married Angela's ex-boyfriend Larry Posey. Ruby and Angela were both pregnant when Angela went missing. We'll get into this more in episode three. I know she was seeing other people and Stephen. Like, she wasn't actually in a relationship with Stephen. They had broken up. I know she was trying to patch things up with him. And from what I under, you know, every time she and I had had conversation, that was her part. That was her love. That was the person she wanted to spend the rest of her life with. Stephen was Chris Mooney's manager on duty the night of September 9th into the early morning hours of September 10th. Mooney worked at the Petal Pizza Hut throughout high school in the 1990s and was closing at the restaurant that night with Stephen. The only interaction that I saw with them was uh, pretty much, I guess, the night of the disappearance of her. Um, you know, I worked as the dishwasher at Pizza Hut. So, and then I normally stayed and closed and helped clean the store up at night, you know. And I remember Angela coming there and I remember, you know, her and Steve arguing. Uh, but, you know, it's one of them where it's like, uh, you know, none of my business staying out of it type deal is the way I looked at it. You know, the way I still look at things when something like that happens even now. It was just all verbal, you know, argument, like a disagreement type deal. And um, she left. And I don't remember if there was anybody else closing or not. I just remember, because a lot of times I remember it just being Steve and I closing, cleaning up the store and whatnot. Then sometime in the early morning hours, between 3.30 and 6.40 a.m. on September 10th, according to different sources. This is where Angela's disappearance starts to get strange. It's odd that Angela's car was found just a couple of hours after she was last seen 
so far and removed from that location or from where she lived. The Monted Bridge is not somewhere many people would go, much less at night. To give you some perspective, Angela would have had to travel 18 miles from Pedal along dark, twisting country roads with no people in sight for the last several miles to get to the spot where her car was found. And remember, no cell phones to communicate if you had a flat tire or car trouble. So I asked Deborah if she knew if Angela had been out to the Monted Bridge before. There was a, there's a meeting place there. I mean, they had meeting, they had meet there before. So she had, okay, so she had gone there before. Yeah. So apparently she went there. A little background about the bridge, so you understand why her car being found almost immediately was so odd. The Monted Bridge was built in 1903 across the Leaf River in the Monted community, which is Denham spelled backwards for a Mississippi Confederate soldier named Joseph Denham. The name was inverted because a community in nearby Wayne County is already named Denham. The bridge is in the epitome of the middle of nowhere. Today, there are a smattering of campsites and travel trailers around, but back then, no one lived out there. The nearest town is New Augusta, population in 1993 fewer than 700. So people out in rural Petal in Forest County could travel the back roads and get to New Augusta in Perry County by crossing the bridge. The bridge was shut down to automobile traffic in 1980 and no longer serviced, according to state documents. But locals would still cross the nearly 1,000-foot-long wooden planked bridge to shave off about 15 minutes to their commute from Petal to New Augusta. So while it is strange that her car was found there, the area around the bridge had become a local meeting place for friends to hang out or young lovers to meet and look at the stars. But what's just downright bizarre, and this won't be the only thing that's just crazy about Angela's disappearance, is who found her car that Friday morning in this remote location shortly after she was last seen and before anyone even knew she was missing. Randy Freeman, Angela's uncle, was the one who found her car at the Monted Bridge. He was taking a shortcut to the new Augusta home of his girlfriend. And I got a phone call, and it's my brother, Randy. He had started dating somebody at, um, down there at New Augusta, okay? And his girlfriend lived on the other side of that bridge. He was running late, and he knew that if he crossed the bridge, it would save him five or 10 minutes, but instead of going all mm-hmm. the way around. So he crossed it, and when he crossed it, he ran across her car. Wow. Then for that, do you know how long it had been before we found that car? Randy is Deborah's middle brother of three and had just started taking classes at Jones County Junior College in Ellisville in August of 93. We met up at a busy Mexican restaurant in Petal, so forgive the quality of the audio. I was going to Jones at the time when she came up with this, and my wife, or my wife now, my girlfriend then, uh, lived in Monty. So I, I'm coming from Jones, and I always went across the Monty Bridge. I was going across, getting close to going across, and it was a car seat. Didn't think nothing about it until I got right beside it. And I was like, that's Angela's car. So... So I went, I, I didn't stop or look at the car or anything like that. I just went on to Jennifer's. I mean, at the time, there was no cell phones. Not everybody walked right. around with a cell phone. Yeah, when I saw it, I mean, it was, 
Well, I thought it was strange because I knew Angela would not go out to the Monmouth Bridge at night by herself. There was no way. When Randy got to his girlfriend Jennifer's house, he called his sister Deborah, Angela's mom, at work at Arby's restaurant in Pedal. He didn't reach her, so he called Nicholas, Angela's younger 14-year-old brother, to tell his mom to call him back. Um, so I went on to Jennifer's and used her phone to try to call Deborah. Well, I didn't get hold of Deborah. I got a hold of Nicholas uh, and told him that I found Angela's car out here. <coughs> so I told him he's supposed to try to get a hold of his mom. So I went back. There was a, a game warden that went across the bridge just before I did, and he stopped and looked at it. And I got out and just felt the hood. It was cold. So it's been there for a while, I knew that, but I didn't want to touch anything. Randy waited there for his sister and law enforcement to arrive. Deborah and Bill Stewart, Angela's stepfather at the time, called Perry County Sheriff's Department and told them what little they knew at the time and asked them to meet them out at the bridge. I call, my brother calls me and tells me the car, and I'm thinking, well, maybe she left it down there and gave run, you know, because it's a used car. You don't think anything's wrong. I went and called... Uh, the guy at the pizza. So I called him and I said, I got him on the phone and I said, you seen Angela? Uh, found her car, so, you know, and uh, I'm really worried, you know. Haven't seen her. Click. So I said, okay. So then I called and I called Perry County and I said, look, we're coming down to y'all's area. My daughter's car is there. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if there's something wrong or if she left it or, or whatever, but would y'all meet us down there, please? We lived in Petal. It took us at least 30 minutes okay. to get out there, okay? It was in summer. It was hot. We got down there. We got on his tailgate and sat there and waited. You know, we got there and they weren't even there. It don't take them but maybe 10 minutes to get there. Time passed, and Deborah finally called Perry County Sheriff's Office again. So then we sat there and sat there, and then I finally called them back. I had, a, I had one of them phones in my car. And they said, I said, I've been down here for 30 minutes. We called y'all an hour ago, and I said, y'all still not here. Are y'all coming? Oh, yeah, we'll be there in just a second. They finally come down there. There's two deputies. And they come down there, and they start asking me questions. Does she like to get drunk? Does she like to party? They had two teenagers that same week that had run away. Okay. So they assumed right. she was just yeah. another runaway teen. Mm -hmm. I told them no. She didn't like to drink. She was pregnant. She didn't want to do anything to hurt that baby. Right. Nothing. Because she'd already named the baby, right? Yes. I said, no, she does not party. She don't... And she got to the point where she barely wore makeup. You know, she just... But anyway, I... So then I answer all their questions, and then they start looking at the car, okay? And when we got there, I, I noticed, you know, the car on the side, right across from the car, was a puddle or something. And I asked that gentleman, one of the deputies, and I said, what is that on the ground? And he looked at me, and he straightened an eye, and he said, he took out his pocket, took out a knife, stirred it up in there. He said, oh, that's transmission fluid from a log truck. According to Deborah, Sheriff Herring told her two other teens had run away that week in Perry County, so she just needed to relax and wait for her daughter to come back when she was good and ready. Deborah had also called her oldest brother, Roger Freeman, who had recently finished the police academy and was working at the Hattiesburg Laurel Regional Airport in Jones County, 
about 40 minutes away, and asked him to come out to the bridge. I was working at the airport that day. Of course, I was scheduled to get off way later than what I actually did. And, of course, we didn't have a cell phone. If you had a cell phone, it was a big brick or a big bag, you know, back then. Uh, Deborah called me and told me, was filling me in about how my brother had found Angela's car. And I was familiar with the Monted Road area for the fact that she used to be the way we went to go deer hunting. We used to go the back way with my uncle. And we'd go across the Monty Bridge to get to Camp Shelby to do our deer hunting into Camp Shelby. And so I was familiar with it. I knew that the bridge was condemned, you know, so for her to tell me that, you know, they found her car at this location, which just seemed odd. Mm-hmm. Angela was headstrong, but she was also not that. I, don't, I didn't see her going out there by herself. You know, because I had been out there at night. It's very dark out there at night. Not a place that a female would want to mm-hmm. be by herself. Or... Roger, who is now a lieutenant in criminal investigations with the Wiggins, Mississippi Police Department, has the unique perspective of being family, but also having a law enforcement background. Deborah called me. I left work at my relief out there. I went straight out there, and I collected some of the substance that was on the ground that the deputy from Perry County said was transmission fluid. I knew when I looked at it, it was transmission fluid. Why do you think he thought it was? I don't know. I think he just didn't want to. I think it's lazy law enforcement. Do you think he was lazy, or do you think he was just not well-trained. That probably got a lot to do with it, how much training. Perry County was and remains a very rural county, 650 square miles and about 11,000 people in 1993, maybe 1,500 or more so today. Roger says there was a lack of training required statewide for the sheriff's departments at the time. Still, Roger was fresh out of the academy and recognized potential evidence of a crime where the responding deputy did not. Angela's grandmother, Clydell Freeman, says the responding law enforcement officials made judgments about Angela and didn't investigate at all. She says Perry County believed early on that Angela had just run off and would turn up in the next few days. I visited with Clydell and her son Raymond, who is Deborah's youngest brother, in their home near the Bellevue community west of Hattiesburg back in June. What do you think went wrong, or why are we still here 25 years later? It was uh, messed up so to start with. A lot of it. Call huh? Call I don't have much for the man. I mean, I don't hate him, but when we were standing on the bridge that day, they were searching. He came through there and stopped and was talking, and he said, Well, if that had been my daughters, I'd have knew where they were. How do you think that makes a mother and a grandmother feel? How does he know if his children were 17 years old? How does he know where they're going to be every minute? I mean, that was cruel, very cruel to say something like that. At a time that we didn't know what was where she was or if she was whatever. And so I just, I don't have nothing for him, you know, about him putting her down like that. She was a teenager and they told her she got drunk and left somebody to take her on. Yeah, that was the deputy. 
What did he say? Deputy, the deputy that come out to check the when she, she mm-hmm. called him about the car, and I uh, got out there and said she got drunk and went off with somebody. She'll come back. Y'all take the car on home. Raymond says Sheriff Herring not only didn't have the car fingerprinted, but he also didn't request any other agency to assist in collecting evidence because they simply didn't believe there was a crime scene that needed evidence collected. And then they started looking at the car. Well, I noticed on the passenger side, the door had been opened because the grass was so high. The grass was inside the door, okay? So he came over and he said, well, I don't see no struggle. I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? And because I'm, you know, everything's going through my head and mind. Right. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I've never. He said, well, a struggle means, you know, something happened out here. It didn't happen. So I said, okay. So what are you telling me? What do you want me to do? I, he's, I said, well, we're just going to, if she don't call you in a few days, you let us know. And we'll go from there. So then I said, well, what you going to do about this car? And he said, well, I don't see nothing on the car, no struggle, no nothing. He said, won't you drive the car home? And like I say, when she doesn't appear in the next few days, we'll come and we'll investigate. I said, this car is a standard. How do you expect not to us not touch anything? He gave me a handkerchief. He said, use this when you shift. Did assumptions and stereotyping of what girls like Angela were most likely to do play into the lack of initial investigation that Friday? I'm also curious if the seeming lack of importance placed on Angela's disappearance by Perry County initially affected the way the news media covered Angela as well. In reviewing all the old press coverage, it's appalling to me the tone of the characterization of this missing teen in the first weeks after she disappears. Quote, Instead of changing classes with her peers, she changed jobs, working at five different fast food restaurants in two years, end quote, in describing her as a high school dropout. Her mother is quoted as saying that she had matured and had not missed a car payment, to which the news story adds, quote, Angela changed addresses almost as often as she changed jobs, living with two former boyfriends and another woman during 1993, end quote. This type of characterization has been alleged by the family and close friends of the investigators, but to see it in old press coverage shocks me. As a fellow journalist and journalism professor, the implied bias just doesn't sit well with me and we will explore the ethics of the crime reporters for local press and TV in a later episode. Today, the only person in law enforcement still actively working to solve Angela's case is Rusty Keyes. Keyes was a young patrol officer in 1993, so he wasn't involved in the initial investigation. He made detective in 1994 and has spent most of his career with the Hattiesburg Police Department. In 2006, he took his current position as the Assistant Chief of Police at the University of Southern Mississippi, which has a larger student population than the entire population of the town of Petal, to give you some perspective. I was never fully and officially assigned the case. 
until this unit formed in 2006. Uh, John Mark Weathers was the district attorney mm-hmm. at the time, and there was, and he, uh, and he, along with his investigator at the time, which was Jim Kelly and Keith Obrey, they saw where there was a just a hole in investigations in Hattiesburg, just the way things had had fallen over the la- over the previous few years, where there was a crime scene element missing. A consistent crime scene, you know, where everything that came to the DA's office was consistently done the same way. And there, of course, a cold case, you know, hole that was there. A lot of agencies had cold cases, but you just don't have time to work them. So they uh, decided to uh, try and form a crime scene unit, you know, uh, a metro crime scene unit, and have a cold case unit attached to it. And, and they wanted to go through the university, you know, and the criminal justice department. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Don Cabana at the time was on board. He, he loved it. Shelby Timms bought in on it as the president. He agreed to house it here. And I was the first one hired. I left Hattiesburg in April of 06, uh, and then we formed this in June. Keyes, who was appointed to head the Hattiesburg MSA Cold Case Unit, currently has about 20 cases assigned to him including Angela's. Nobody in this case ever has conspired to not solve it. For, for a case, to, any case, if it's conspired to be, if there's a conspiracy not to solve it, you're looking at something that takes all kinds of people to do. Okay? And there, that was never done here. There may have been things that that were not done in the beginning that I wish were done, okay? But if, if you look at Angela at the time, at that time in her life, what they had there at the time, Monday morning you can look at it and say they screwed it up. But at the time, I can see what they why they did it. Okay. Rural law enforcement agency deal with runaways all the time. It made sense to them, okay, that she was a runaway. Uh, Angela was, you know, she she got around, okay. Uh, so, and hadn't there been runaways in uh, the area? Uh, well, of course. I mean, right. You're talking about a rural area, okay. And um, they made a decision, okay. Could they looked at the car? Yes. Could they have done more follow up? Yes. But they didn't. And and, it, it, and that don't take nothing away from them. Happened. There was both. And Sheriff Herring at the time saw both. It just over the years that story developed that there was one puddle. There wasn't. There was two. Okay. Another issue that arose were allegations of racial bias, or of the race of Angela's unborn baby being a reason that she was not only missing but perhaps had actually been killed. Was race, or the fact that Angela had most recently been linked to a young black man named Larry Posey, who many assumed to be the father of the child she was carrying, a contributing factor to the perceived mistakes made early on? Or was it possible they weren't mistakes at all? It happened in Perry County is where her car was found. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, but Larry Posey's black. They so far in the boondocks back there that I really do believe that's the reason why my daughter's case did not get 
the right stuff done because they thought of her as, oh, she went with a black guy. Current Perry County Sheriff Mitch Nobles, who was elected in 2016, doesn't believe that to be the case. Nobles, who was still in high school in 1993, entered law enforcement in 1997. It is interesting to note he was an investigator with the Petal Police Department from 2007 to 2013. He is very familiar with the case and has met with the Freeman family about the case several times. What was the cultural and racial climate at the time between white and black in 1993 in Perry County? I mean, it was, I mean, it's just a lot of difference, you know what I mean? That, that it happened then in 93, but it just wasn't in the open. The family is not necessarily said it was the case, but mm-hmm. that perhaps because she had dated and might have been pregnant by a black person, that the case was handled differently than it would have been? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't see any agency doing it that way. Okay. I, you know, I don't, not federal, nor Perry right. County looking at it, but that was the issue. Still, is it fair to ask if the presence of an interracial relationship has played a factor in this two-and-a-half-decade investigation that, to date, has not turned up Angela, a body, or a criminal charge of any kind? Consider this. The White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the most militant and violent branch of the KKK, is still active in and around Petal and New Augusta. Charges have been made on blog forums that the KKK may have been involved and that some folks close to Angela were KKK members. Of course, the KKK doesn't publish annual membership roles and posts on social media, well, let's just say people post a lot of stuff that doesn't have to be or can't be substantiated. Still, the White Knights, founded in 1964, were responsible for an untold number of church burnings, lynchings, and bombings. This is the branch responsible for the murders of the civil rights workers in Neshoba County, Mississippi, during Freedom Summer, depicted in the film Mississippi Burning, and for the assassination of civil rights leader Vernon Damer in 1966. Angela went missing in 1993. It wasn't until 1994 that the man responsible for the assassination of civil rights icon Medgar Evers in 1963 was finally brought to justice in Mississippi. This is depicted in the movie Ghosts of Mississippi. I would like to think times and hearts have changed. However, in 2017, Mississippi still had five active chapters of the KKK. The National Institutes of Health report that predictive behaviors for runaways include school disengagement, Angela had dropped out of school, substance abuse, prior to finding out she was pregnant, Angela had abused alcohol and used marijuana, and lack of parental support. She hated her stepfather, and according to her uncle Roger, and friends, she felt abandoned by her mother because she felt that her mother had chosen her stepfather over her. And she had actually lived with several friends over the last year before she vanished. Deborah told me, however, that her daughter had never run away or been missing before. Still, was it a rational assumption on the part of law enforcement on the original scene that she had run away? I was curious 
so I looked up some statistics from back then on the likelihood of a teenager to run away or become a victim of violent crime. I was actually surprised to find out just how high the incidence of violent crime was back in the early 1990s compared to the rate of teenage runaways. According to the National Runaway Safeline website, between 1.6 and 2.8 million teenagers ran away each year in the early 1990s. I felt sure that was far more than fell victim to violent crime, but I was wrong. 1993 was actually the pinnacle year for violent crimes against teenagers in this country, according to statistics from the U.S. Justice Department. The U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics reported that for 12 to 20-year-olds, 175 per 1,000 were victims of some violent crime. The reason given was the increase in the crack cocaine epidemic sweeping urban areas and the increasing ease of access to guns. By comparison, in 2014, a more normal year for crime, only 27 of every 1,000 teens fell victim to some violent crime. Granted, these statistics aren't broken down by gender, race, or geography, but assuming, upon finding an abandoned car far from where it should have been, that the teenage owner in 1993 had run away rather than fallen victim to violence, well, just doesn't hold water, especially when considering the plight of two teenage girls, Lori Hill and Beverly Rowell, in South Mississippi in 1993. And crime had been rising for at least the five years prior, according to statistics, that all law enforcement agencies should have been privy to. Sheriff Herring didn't make many comments in the press about the case, but in one of his rare statements in the Hattiesburg American, in a September 25, 1993 article, Herring is quoted as saying, quote, 4 p.m. Saturday is when I had full knowledge of the case. On Friday afternoon, we responded to the car in the road. If we spent all our time on cars by the road, as far as seeing it as a crime scene, nothing was seen, end quote. I'm curious how many abandoned cars belonging to teenagers who couldn't be located he got in a day, a week, a year. I called Herring, who is retired, back in June to ask him about this and about the initial investigation but he told me he was busy and would return my call. I'm still waiting. The truth is that Perry County Sheriff's Office should have actually done just that, treated every car abandoned by the side of a road with an owner who couldn't be found as a potential crime scene, and should be doing that every single time. Angela's car was, in fact, not processed until the next week by Petal Police Department after it was taken back to Deborah's home. Do you think the police are, not just the local police, but police in general sometimes are too quick to think that when it's a teenager that it's a runaway? Yeah. I think you should take every case and do your job. Don't assume nothing. Because this is what you get. All the failures, all the... And then... They're not going, sitting here, going through this for 25 years, you know. And I look at it this way. What if it was your daughter? Or what yeah. if it was your son? How would you do it different? You'd do it different, yeah. I promise you. 
And that's what everybody has to look at if it was theirs. I mean, do your job. I learn a lot, but I can't go back and redo. It's done. According to Rusty Keys, Angela was what he calls a high-risk victim to come to harm. If you look at it, I mean, for a girl to be 17 years old, she had a lot of things out there in her life that could... She's what I would call a high-risk victim. If you look at... If you do what's called... But when you investigate somebody in a violent crime, you've got to look at what their life is. It's called victimology is what it's called. And if you look at her life, which I have broke it down, and look at it, I've never seen a victim so young to be such a high-risk victim that really wasn't either a prostitute or a drug user. A high-risk victim would be a prostitute, okay? A low-risk victim may be a housewife that lives in a rural area that never goes into town very low risk, uh, has no circle of friends, you know, just basically stays at home and cares for her family. Medium risk would be, would be y'all, if you want to say you're out in the public, mm-hmm. you're, you got a, you know, you're in, you got a profession, you got a circle of friends, you got a social life, you got, you know, so you're around people, and then, but then the high risk victim would be, you know, somebody, I, sometimes I put a, a real estate agent as a high-risk victim, yeah. you know, if, if they're really busy, mm-hmm. you know, and showing houses and things like that. But it, but you make that determination once you start right. investigating them. So, you know, Angela was, was a high-risk victim, you know, very, you know, that was very surprising. Most of us fall into the category of medium-risk victims, meaning we are just as likely as the next guy or just as unlikely as the next guy, depending on where we are, to be victims of crime. This means we have jobs outside the home, have lots of friends, and may venture out at night, but when we return home, we lock our doors. Low-risk victims are those who are usually at home or work and don't frequent unfamiliar places. For a person to be considered at high risk of becoming a victim of violent crime, he or she is typically participating in some kind of risky behavior on a regular basis. For example, a prostitute, a member of a street gang involved in criminal activity, a drug user, someone who works at night and interacts with a lot of people they don't know. Teenage girls in the rural South don't typically fall into this category. So how did this petite blue-eyed Mississippi girl get here? There's a saying in the study of victimology that to understand how a person died, look at how the person lived. So let's do that. In the next episode, we are going to explore how Angela got here. Telling Lives is brought to you by reporter, writer, and host Elizabeth Christian, producer Brian Manuel, Associate Producer Jerry Clark, Audio Editor Andrew Vance Miller, Audio Transcriptionist Lance Christian, Research Assistants Rhett Williams, Marilyn Barfoot, Trinity Baugh, and Abigail Jones, Photographers Abigail Jones and Grace Miller, Original Music by Nicholas Freeman. If you like this episode, subscribe to Telling Lives Podcast on your favorite podcast app. 
And if you have any information about the disappearance of Angela Freeman, contact us at tellinglivespod at gmail.com. Oh. Huh.